For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Our planet is lush with life of all kinds, from the smallest single-celled organism to the massive blue whale gliding beneath the waves, Earth is a rich tapestry. Nowhere is that more prevalent than in the varieties of cultures across all seven continents, where the people in one part of the world might live in a technological paradise of constant digital connection, there might exist an isolated island tribe who have never seen electricity before. In the mid-1950s, though, Anthropologist Horace Miner had been studying a strange group of people living in a massive territory below Lake Superior and above the state of Sorona in Mexico. He wrote about them in a paper titled Body Ritual Among the Nacarima. The Nacarima prioritized economic pursuits and their appearance above all else, spending their days performing bizarre body rituals in front of shrines in their homes. While every home had at least one shrine, those who had elevated themselves above poorer tribe members often had two or more. In fact, the value of one's living quarters hinged on how many shrines they could fit inside. Miner discovered through extensive study that every shrine possessed a box of elixirs and concoctions that the Nakarima would either ingest or smear across their faces to improve themselves. Such tinctures could only be procured by medicine men, who would hand over the elixir along with an incantation. And there were magical potions for all sorts of purposes, too. For a price, of course. The Nakarima couldn't help but hoard these charms, as they were called. Even once they had served their purpose, the vessels they were packed in would be stored in the shrine in case their contents ever needed to be used again. And right there in the shrine, underneath that collection of boxes, sat a font with water provided from a central source, the water temple of the community. The Nakarima performed daily cleansing rituals at this font, including one that was meant to prevent them from incurring the wrath of the Holy Mouthmen. The Holy Mouthmen were feared in the community as they performed torturous acts upon the mouth of people and they would examine the teeth of the tribe's members and carve holes in the ones that had started rotting. Once the holes were large enough, they filled them with a liquid that hardened to protect the teeth from getting worse. Avoiding the holy mouth men involved a daily ritual, performed by rubbing a magical substance on a bundle of hog's hairs and moving them around inside their oral cavities. By doing this each day, they were able to prevent untold evils from invading their mouths and driving away their friends. Folks who needed more help than could be provided by the average medicine man or holy mouth man were required to pay at the Latipso. The Latipso was a temple where sacred ceremonies were performed on the very ill. They would have all their clothes removed by a vestal maiden who would collect various fluids and excretions from their bodies to give to a diviner. 
The diviner studied the organic substances and determined what it was that was making the Nakarima members sick. The Nakarima were a culture dependent on magic and ceremonies, all of which were performed in specialized rooms in their homes far from the prying eyes of others, even from the other members of their own tribes. Horace Miner's paper was first seen in American Anthropologist, a journal published by the American Anthropological Association in 1956. Today, the rituals of the Nakarima are still widely practiced, though their tools have become more advanced. The bundles of hog's hairs have been changed to nylon, and the Nakarima people hoard elixirs with even more magical powers within their shrines. In fact, this strange tribe isn't too different from you and I. If you look closely, you might even recognize some of its members. Just reverse the letters in the name, and you'll see that Horace Minor was simply exploring the large swath of people living between Canada and Mexico. 1950s, Americans. Evolution is a natural process. As creatures learn to avoid predators over time, their species develop defense mechanisms over the course of tens, hundreds, or even hundreds of thousands of years. But evolution isn't limited to nature. Everything changes over time. Computers get smaller and more powerful. Homes are built with stronger materials. And even sports undergo some alterations. For example... Tennis has been played since the 12th century when it was called Jeu de Pomme, or Game of the Palm, in France. Around the 16th century, players stopped hitting the ball with their hands and started using rackets instead. As more people in more countries continued to play it, they also began to change it. A British Army officer named Walter Wingfield spent over a year perfecting his own version, which he patented and sold as Sverestyk, or ball playing. Included in the box was a net, rackets, and balls. He tested his new sport on unsuspecting guests at a friend's garden party, after which Wingfield's creation took on a life of its own. Sverestyke found its way to the United States, and all over Europe, where it adopted a new and easier-to-pronounce name, lawn tennis, for the simple reason that it wasn't played on a court but on a grassy lawn instead. Interest in the sport led to the formation of tennis clubs, as well as tournaments in places like New York City and France. And while some of the first tennis balls had been made of leather or wool, or strips of cloth, the equipment kept changing with the times. Leather eventually gave way to rubber, a material used in modern tennis ball manufacturing. Of course, there was one problem with tennis back then, no matter what the ball was made out of. It could only be played outdoors. Wingfield's original game design had included illustrations of an hourglass-shaped court, which was wider at the ends and more tapered near the net in the middle. He'd wanted the sport to appear beautiful, from all angles. Unfortunately, those kind of spaces could only be made outdoors, and winters in Victorian England got quite cold. Aristocratic elites didn't want to have to wait until spring to play tennis again, but they didn't want to freeze, either. However, rather than construct a court indoors— They just changed the game entirely. Again. You see, back in India during the mid-1800s, British military officers had found a fun way to pass the time. They would set up books in a row across the center of a table with one officer on each side. In their hands was a single book, which they used as a racket to whack a golf ball back and forth over the literary wall they'd constructed. Borrowing from both the British military officers and Walter Wingfield's lawn tennis idea, a new game was invented. 
It used a net just like in tennis, except it was much smaller. The rackets also got a change. They went from having taut strings in their empty centers to being solid wood paddles. While the company J. Jacques & Son sold a boxed version of the game in England in 1901, Parker Brothers distributed its own variety in the United States. In fact, Parker Brothers bought the name of the game from J. Jacques & Son not long after it went on sale and litigated everyone violating its trademark. That same year, two more major changes to the game happened. The ball was replaced with a new kind made from celluloid, the same material that was used to make camera film. These new types of balls were hollow and filled with air, allowing them to bounce quite high. To aid in their delivery across the net, stippled rubber was glued to the surfaces of the wooden rackets, or paddles. Within several years, its popularity spawned organizations where players could connect and compete, followed by tournaments and championships all over the globe. Today, it has become an Olympic sport, chock full of special techniques, strategies, and a glossary of specific terms. What had originally begun as a way to pass the time in winter in the 19th century gradually turned into a global phenomenon. Officially, it's called table tennis, but Parker Brothers had branded it with a different name, something it had been called since its inception, and one we still use to this day. Ping pong. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.